Deep dive into the world of science with Nature Plus. From the vastness of the distant star systems to the intricacies of infectious diseases due to climate change, we've got you covered. Enjoy access to over 55 cutting-edge journals, breaking scientific news, and over a 1,000 new articles every month. Whether you're a seasoned researcher or just curious, Nature Plus simplifies complex studies. Plus, it's all available right at your fingertips on nature.com. Nature Plus, the key to unlocking the world's most significant scientific advances. Subscribe today at go.nature.com plus. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Like it sounds so simple. They had no idea. But now the data speaks. I find this not only refreshing, but but at some level astounding. Nature. Welcome back to the Nature Podcast. This week, a new concern for bumblebees, the researchers mapping opioid use in the US and the importance of understanding the weather in our oceans. I'm Adam Levy. And I'm Benjamin Thompson. Last weekend, I went to a barbecue in my friend's garden. And of course, being the UK, it was a bit drizzly, but we barbecued anyway. We were kept company by a couple of bumblebees that were loving the lavender plants and spent a good chunk of time bumbling around the purple flowers looking for nectar. But bumblebees' clumsy quest around flowers actually makes this type of bee super important, as Harry Siviter from Royal Holloway University of London explains. Bumblebee is absolutely vital for pollination services, yeah, for agricultural crops and for wildflower pollination as well. We know that bumblebees are absolutely fantastic pollinators, and this is basically because they're so big and such clumsy pollinators. They're uh, much more effective pollinators than other species of bee, and they're really, really important for things like um, tomatoes, strawberry pollination, raspberry pollination, and uh, they're very, very important to our economy and obviously for um, conservation as well. But in spite of their importance for the world around us, bumblebees are having a pretty rough time of it, with numbers of certain species in decline. The environment that a bumblebee finds itself in now is very different to one that it would have found 50 to 100 years ago. Intensification of agriculture means that there's less food around. Um, there's been an increase in diseases and parasites due to moving of bumblebees around the world. And of course, there's the emergence of insecticides. Some of them have now been shown to have negative impacts on important pollinators such as bumblebees. Many bumblebee species are social, living in nests with a life cycle that revolves around a queen. To protect this life cycle, and those of other bees, the European Union voted to ban the outdoor use of three insecticides earlier this year. These all belong to a particular class called the neonicotinoids, which are still in use in many parts of the world. In a Nature paper this week, Harry and his colleagues have been looking at the potential effects on bumblebees of a new group of insecticides, called the sulfoxamines. These have been suggested as an alternative to the neonicotinoids and have been licensed for use in several countries. The team looked at one particular sulfoxamine insecticide called sulfoxaflor. Products containing sulfoxaflor have been approved for use in several European countries and more approvals are on the cards. The team were interested in the effect that low concentrations of sulfoxaflor had on the bumblebee species Bombus terrestris. To find that out, 
they first had to set up some colonies in the lab. So what we did was we collected queen bumblebees from Windsor Great Park. We took them back to the lab and we encouraged them to rear colonies. Once the colonies were going strong, we exposed half of them to a sucrose solution, which had a very, very small concentration of sulfoxiflor in it. After two weeks of feeding the bumblebees, the colonies were taken outside to the campus ground and left to forage on their own. Harry kept an eye on them. I would go out at night time um, in a bee suit. I would um, open the lid to these colonies and have a look at them and see how they were getting on. I would record a work number, reproductive output, so the number of males and queens that they were producing, and also look at the, the food stores in the nest. Early on in the colony's life cycle, Harry found that sulfoxiflor exposed colonies produced fewer worker bumblebees than the controls. And other differences became apparent as the colonies developed. Colonies that had been exposed to sulfoxiflor at the start of their life cycle were producing fewer males and fewer queens. So if, if, a, if a colony doesn't produce males and queens, it has no reproductive output, has no fitness, it has no bees going into the next generation. So we found under our regime of sulfoxiflor exposure reduced the reproductive output of bumblebee colonies. The team showed a 54% reduction in the reproductive output of the sulfoxiflor-treated colonies, meaning that fewer reproductive offspring were present. The production of males and queens is something that happens late in a bumblebee colony's life cycle, and Harry hypothesises that the effects on the workers early on might be having a knock-on effect later. Of course, this is a first study that looks into the effect that this insecticide has on bumblebees, and it uses particular conditions. That said, Nigel Rain from the University of Guelph, who is the author on a News and Views article that accompanies this research, thinks that the way the study was set up, with both a laboratory and an outdoor section, means it can offer some useful insights. Another really nice feature of this experiment is that the authors have chosen to use colonies that have been raised from wild-caught queens in the local environments, and obviously they're addressing a question with a a class of insecticide for which we have very little toxicological information, certainly at this kind of level. Nigel suggested that important next steps need to be taken. These include working out the mechanisms of the effects on bumblebees, whether the results are mirrored in agricultural environments, and what the effects are on different bee species. He says that given all the work to understand the effects of neonicotinoids, there is a need to unpick the potential impact of any insecticides that might replace them. We, we need to be sure when we're talking about the relative risk of pesticides that we are also doing our due diligence to look at similar sorts of sublethal effects from other classes of pesticide, be they existing classes of pesticide or emerging classes like uh, these sulfloxamines, which may be, uh, may be likely to be used in, in much more widely in agriculture as a result of other policy restrictions. So simply replacing one class of pesticide with another class of pesticide without fully understanding the risk to the pollinators would be a misstep, in, in my opinion. That was Nigel Rain from the University of Guelph in Canada. Before him, you heard from Harry Siviter from Royal Holloway, University of London, here in the UK. You can read Harry's paper and Nigel's news and views over at nature.com nature. What do you think about when you think about the impact of climate change? on the oceans. Maybe you think about sea level rise, perhaps ocean acidification, or the rising temperatures of the seas. But we typically think of each of these issues in broad brushstrokes. Take sea level rise. We might talk about a metre of sea level rise by the end of the century, but we rarely describe how such a change varies from place to place, from month to month. 
This week's Nature is publishing a comment piece and a research paper, both of which emphasise the variability of the ocean's physical characteristics. In other words, the ocean's weather. First, the paper. The study describes something that we're used to considering on land, heat waves. I called up oceanographer Thomas Frerlicher, who led the study, to find out what a marine heat wave is. So a marine heat wave is actually a period of extreme warm sea surface temperature that persists for days to months and can extend up to several thousands of kilometers in the ocean. And that's something that we have already started thinking about on land. You know, I, I feel like it's really common for us to talk about heat waves on land. And we also know quite well that extreme climate and weather events um, overland shape the structure of terrestrial biological systems. But in contrast, we know very little how extreme events in the ocean will change under global warming. But why is it important that we, that we think about heat waves instead of just thinking about kind of this global average temperature increase and things like that? Heat wave can actually disturb an uh, entire marine ecosystem for a long time. So it's not only impact marine organisms and ecosystems, but also the weather systems in the atmosphere, but also human systems on land. For example, the Peruvian marine heat wave in early 2017 caused heavy rainfall and flooding on the west coast of tropical southern America and the Andes Mountains. And then the heavy rain triggered numerous landslides and flooding, which resulted in a death toll of several hundred. Now, we know that these heat waves happen, as you've just said. Um, but what in this study were you looking to investigate regarding ocean heat waves? Yeah, so we used the daily global sea surface temperature data from satellite observations, which cover the period 1982 to 2016. And we actually detected a doubling in the number of marine heat wave days. And we showed that these changes are mostly outside the range of those expected from natural internal variability. So this indicates that the climate change signal is already strong enough to be detected in observations. So that's what you do looking back. What about the future, though? What we see is that if global atmospheric surface temperatures were to rise by 3.5 degrees Celsius relative to pre-industrial levels by the end of the 21st century, the number of marine heatwave days will be 41 times higher than in pre-industrial times. This is a huge increase and for me, it's somehow worrisome, given that the 3.5 degrees global warming is predicted to result from current national policies for the reduction of global carbon emissions. The increase is much larger for marine heat waves than for land-based heat waves. Thomas Frelicker there. Nature is also publishing a comment piece on the topic of ocean weather and, in particular, the need for ecologists to take into account just how variable the seas can be. Amanda Bates, one of the authors of the comment piece, emphasises just how much the ocean can change. Even studies like Thomas's, looking at extreme events, don't capture the level of detail that ecologists might need. In the ocean, we also have a lot of fine-scale variability. We can have upwelling where we get cold water coming up to the surface, and that can change temperature by tens of degrees within hours. We plot these out in these large kind of gridded scales, but it completely uh, misses all of this fine scale variability in the ocean. 
and that by trying to understand the variability, what will emerge from that are hopefully some tools or areas or regions that we can prioritize and then come up with some kind of conservation or management tools. Amanda is hoping, for example, for an understanding of refuge sites in the ocean, where vulnerable species can potentially flourish even as the oceans as a whole continue to warm. But getting data on the fine-scale variability of something as massive as the ocean is no easy task. Observations from satellites, like the ones Thomas used in his study, have a limited resolution and can't see deeper into the ocean. But Amanda stresses that more and more sensors are being deployed in the seas. And so right now, we are starting to build up this local-scale, fine-scale information. We're right on the cusp of this kind of big data era where we're going to have information on our globe um, in high resolution. And as biologists, we can start to take advantage of this amazing technology um, that's coming out of the physical world. For Thomas, this is a key point. In order to understand and protect our changing seas, researchers from different disciplines need to work together to understand the oceans in all their detail. I think there should be more collaboration among physical oceanographers and also marine biologists to really tackle this problem uh, together and to collaborate across disciplines to, to make major progress. That was Thomas Frelicker of the University of Bern in Switzerland. You also heard from Amanda Bates, who's at the Memorial University of Newfoundland in Canada. Find Thomas's paper and Amanda's comment over at nature.com forward slash nature. Coming up later in the show, we'll be hearing about the researchers using CRISPR to track the development of a mouse embryo in incredible detail. That's coming up in the news chat. Before then, Noah Baker is here with this week's research highlights. Stop the Press, the new winner of the coveted fastest maturing vertebrate title has been announced. It's the turquoise killifish. Hailing from Mozambique, this tiny critter takes just two weeks to develop from egg to sexual maturity. Killifish spend much of their life as embryos buried in the soil waiting out the long dry season until the rains come and form small pools. Then, the race is on to hatch, mature and lay more eggs in the soil before the puddles dry up. Often, that takes less than three weeks. Researchers found that wild killifish in Mozambique develop even faster than their captive counterparts. More on that study in Current Biology. Volcanologists have been plumbing the depths of Mount St. Helens to form the best picture yet of the infamous volcano's internal, well, plumbing. Researchers set off a series of controlled explosions around the mountain and traced the shockwaves as they moved through the ground. These seismic waves slowed as they passed through a patch between 3.5 and 14 kilometres below the surface. Now, seismic waves move more slowly through hot material, so that suggests that this is the volcano's magma chamber. The slowest movement was between 4 and 6 kilometres down, suggesting that that's where the most molten material is amassed. That research is hot off the press in the journal Geology. Each day, Americans consume more opioids than people in any other country. And each day, over 100 Americans die from opioid overdose. 
the increase in deaths from opioids, which includes both illegal drugs like heroin and prescription painkillers, is so large that the American Center for Disease Control and Prevention have described it as an epidemic. Shamni Bundel has been finding out about the complex factors involved. Statistics show that in the US over the past few decades, prescriptions for opioids have increased, as have the number of deaths caused by opioids. It might seem like a simple link, but understanding and stopping this ongoing crisis in the US is anything but simple. The links between prescription drug use, illegal drug use, the development of addiction and the resulting health problems are a complex mix of social, cultural and medical factors. Here's Georgi Bobashov. For many years I've been studying various aspects of drug use and addiction and I got really fascinated uh, with how complex it is. Georgi isn't a neuroscientist or a clinician. In fact, he started his career studying physics before moving into biological modelling. But he has a personal interest in questions around drug use. I've seen uh, a number of very good friends of mine who fell victim to drug use, alcohol dependence. And I was curious why, you know, when we all grow together, we go together to the same school, we grow in the same society, why some people get addicted and others go ahead with their careers. For Georgi, the solution to unpicking these kinds of questions lies in creating mathematical models. We are trying to turn everything that we observe around us into mathematical terms. Then actually, I think we all or majority of us think in models. For example, if uh, you're planning a party, as you're thinking through what will happen at your party, you're thinking, okay, well, if I have 20 guests, I need to make sure that I have enough silverware, I have enough uh, uh, plates and food. That is actually modeling. You actually make these models about what is most likely to happen. But Georgi's models are a bit more complex than planning a party. They need to account for the kinds of drugs available to people, the neuroscience of addiction, the behaviour of drug dealers, the monitoring of prescription drug use, the community support available for users and the impact of government policies. Drug use and addiction is an extremely complex system. There is not a single factor, not one factor that you change it and uh, that solves the problem. This means that Georgi's models also need to be extremely complex. His approach is something called agent-based modelling. It works by creating a virtual world full of individual agents, representing, in this case, people. In one case, they've created a virtual town filled with 10,000 people, including doctors who can prescribe pain relief medicine, drug dealers who can supply illegal opioids, and users, some of whom have chronic pain conditions. Think of a computer game. Think of a uh, virtual society where we try to model individuals and community of individuals and uh, different individuals will have uh, different rules of behavior. But these rules, they're based on uh, observations, they're based on uh, epidemiological studies. Once the model's set up, the researchers can adjust specific parameters and see the effect. So they can test ideas about what might work to decrease the number of heroin users or new addictions to prescription drugs or overdose deaths. These kinds of agent-based simulations are more complex and hopefully more accurate than previous models. But in order to be as accurate as possible, these models, of course, need accurate data. Big data about 
prescriptions, hospital admissions and so on, are becoming more easily accessible. But there are other data which are less easy to obtain. Enter Daniel Ciccaroni, a clinician and public health specialist. Rather than looking at the big numbers, Daniel and his team have been investigating the behaviour of individual drug users. We observe heroin use and users in their natural environments. Because each chemical version of heroin is used differently, we're very interested in the behaviours of the users themselves. The culture and practices of drug users has a big impact on their health, and details from Daniel's observations can help feed Georgi's models. The observations can also suggest explanations for unexpected patterns seen in the statistics. One example of this has to do not with the health impacts of opioids themselves, but with the prevalence of HIV among drug users. It's a problem that Georgi and Daniel have been working on for some time. HIV can be spread by sharing needles, which explains why it's common in heroin users. But it couldn't explain a significant difference in HIV rates between the east and west coasts of the United States. The HIV rates among injection drug users were so different based on East Coast versus West Coast. And there were wide published speculations about why West Coast does have much lower HIV prevalence rates. One notable difference between the two areas was the kind of heroin used. On the East Coast, refined powder heroin from South Asia and South America was common. On the West Coast, less refined black tar heroin, a dark, gummy substance from Mexico, was widely available. We made some systematic observations on the East Coast, on the West Coast, and what we discovered is that black tar heroin quite likely is protective for HIV. The use of black tar heroin might actually help protect users from HIV transfer. To find out why, Daniel and his team observed the ways in which people actually use the drug. It's protective for HIV because it's a fussy drug. It requires heating to go into solution. Powdered heroin does not. Black tar heroin, because it's sticky, it freezes up injection equipment. You have to rinse it out vigorously. Well, that rinsing is going to reduce the HIV viral load in the syringe. This example shows how observations on the ground can help explain wider patterns. These explanations can then be tested in Georgi's models. In this case, modelling the behaviour of drug users could help predict future problems in the US as a whole as the drugs trade changes. The country is moving toward powdered heroin. The Mexican criminal trafficking organisations have suddenly learned how to create a powdered heroin, which is beginning to replace the solid black tar heroin. Uh, If this continues, then it places a larger percent of the heroin-using population in the United States at risk for HIV. If that happens, it could have immediate policy implications. Systems could be put in place now to prevent or mitigate a future HIV epidemic. Changes like a switch from black tar to powdered heroin can happen rapidly. So these ongoing observations and data collecting and modelling need to be able to keep up. Here's Georgi again. The traditional research take years to get deep understanding of uh, underlying phenomena and and, and to develop reliable models. Here we see that the epidemic is changing very rapidly and we need to respond to it as uh, quickly as possible because people dying every day. That was Georgi Bobashov from US-based research organization RTI International and Daniel Ciccaroni from the University of California, San Francisco. 
both also appear in a feature in this week's Nature that further explores the role of modelling in tackling the US opioid crisis. Find that at nature.com forward slash news. Finally then, listeners, it's time for the news chat. And I'm joined here in the studio by Heidi Ledford, senior reporter here at Nature. Hi, Heidi. Hi. Right then, Heidi, uh, our first piece today is a story that's been two decades in the making. Um, What's been going on? Oh, it's the first drug based on RNA interference. Um, So RNA interference is a technique that you can use to silence specific genes. And back when it was first discovered and first characterized, there was a lot of hope that this could be a really groovy way to make new medicines, that you could use it as a way to shut down, for example, maybe the production of mutated proteins in someone who has a genetic disorder, um, all kinds of possibilities. Well, as I said at the start there, so two decades in the making, I mean, RNA interference, or I mean RNAi as it's known by a lot of people, I mean I remember reading that at the back end of the 90s when I was going to do my undergraduate. Oh, it was so exciting, wasn't it? I mean when that stuff first started coming out, it was, I mean beyond the medical applications, it was just this whole new world in biology. It was, you know, RNA was doing so many more things than we realized, you know, and as people started to discover this, it was like this whole world that had been existing there that we just didn't know. But as is often the case, when you have a new technology and you're trying to, to somehow harness that to make a new medicine, you you run into all sorts of problems along the way that have to be solved first. Well, maybe we can talk about some of those problems when we actually talk about this new drug, which uh, Patisaran, I believe it's called. That's um, right. What, is, what does it do? So Patisaran helps to shut down production of a protein called transthyretin. And um, this is something that's very useful for people who have a rare genetic disorder called hereditary transthyretin amyloidosis. So in that condition, the mutated transthyretin protein become, it starts to accumulate in different organs of the body and then can interfere with their normal function. And, uh, and patisserine's job then is to, is to stop this happening. So this protein is produced primarily in the liver. Patisserine can then come in and shut down uh, expression of the gene that produces then the protein. And, uh, and being sort of liver-related seems super key for this sort of first RNAi drug. Yeah, that's right. So uh, one of the stumbling blocks that the field faced was the difficulty of trying to get their RNA molecules into the cells where, where they needed to, to shut down a particular gene's expression. Anyone who's worked with it in the lab knows that RNA can be a bit fickle. It, it degrades quite easily. There are lots of enzymes out there that love to chew it up, um, and those enzymes are, are uh, plentiful in the bloodstream. Um, you also then have to get the RNA you know, out of the bloodstream, into the tissue where it's needed, into the cells where it's needed, and so forth. So that was a really big stumbling block. The liver happens to be a place where um, it's easier to get these RNA molecules uh, into, and so that became then one of the primary targets for, for companies that were developing therapies based on RNAi. Well, this is the first one to be approved by the regulators. I mean, what happens next, Heidi? Well, there are lots of other RNAi therapies waiting in the wings. Um, some of them are coming along in clinical trials already. Um, and then there's some preclinical work uh, that's moving along the pipeline. People are looking at um, trying to use RNAi in the central nervous system and, and all of these, you know, all sorts of different places. I think what the field sort of recognized is that, you know, there wasn't necessarily going to be a one-size-fit-all solution to the delivery problem, that they have to kind of tackle different organs and different tissues one by one. So although it may have taken sort of 20 years, it looks like finally then we're, we're knocking on the door. That's right. And it's had some other effects as well, because now, um, you know, there's a lot of excitement again about a new technology that might lead to amazing new therapies. And that technology is CRISPR-based gene editing. But they also, that field is also likely to face some difficulties in terms of getting all the molecular components that it needs um, into the cells where they're needed. So that field is is borrowing heavily from what was learned by the researchers who worked with RNAi before them. 
Well, Heidi, that's a beautiful segue. I mean, you and I always seem to end up talking about Chris Berman. I don't know whether it's uh, on the news chat or on back chat, but that's what our next story is is about. Again, um, what's going on in CRISPRland? Uh, we've got another news story about uh, a new way to use CRISPR to track the development of, of a mammal, a mouse, from a single egg into an embryo that has millions of cells. Oh my goodness, that seems like a, like a heck of a job. It is a lot of cells, and it's the first time that they've managed to do this kind of work in, in an organism as complicated as a mouse. Well, I mean, obvious question number one, why would you want to sort of track all the cells in a developing sort of embryo or fetus? Well, I think it tells you, I mean, it's for one thing, it's it's sort of gets to the heart of developmental biology, right? How do you even form these complicated bodies and, and tissues and organs? I mean, it's I think it's one of the, the basic questions and it, it really gets to the heart of that. But it can also tell you what goes wrong, you know, sometimes when, when something goes wrong during development and how that might be fixed. Well, how does CRISPR kind of fit into this endeavor? Well, CRISPR is is really powerful because it allows biologists to track the lineage of an individual cell as it divides and then divides again. Um, What CRISPR does is allow them to essentially create a barcode and a way to sort of individually tag each cell. Uh, So you have this barcode in the cell. These researchers, you know, edited 60 different sites in the genome, for example, to create this barcode. Um, And then the cell divides, and then CRISPR works again, and it sort of modifies that that barcode in in a unique way, potentially, in each cell. Um, And then those cells divide again. The the barcode gets modified again. And so you can sort of track back. um, When you sequence these cells in the genome, you can track back the changes that were made and figure out which cell was descended from which other cell and, and so forth. Oh, wow. So sort of a hereditary tree then. Exactly. You get a family tree of your cells. Yeah. Well, Heidi, this study has sort of just been published, but uh, have any results come out of this work so far? Well, they were already, I mean, they only went up to 12-day-old mouse embryos in this study, um, but they were already able to glean some information about brain development, for example, and and which parts of the brain develop first, followed by, you know, um, you know other parts of the brain, tackling issues that um, developmental biologists had been wondering about for quite some time. Well, finally then, Heidi, I mean, where does this technique go next then? Well, you know, I think ultimately they would hope to be able to use this technique to trace back the cell lineage of every cell in an adult mouse, for example. Um, and then along the way, they can adapt the technique to use to study things like the development of cancer and, and other disorders. Well, Heidi, thanks for joining us. I'm sure we'll have you back on next time there's a CRISPR story. Um, <laughs> listeners, you can find out all about the latest science news over at nature.com news. And that's it for another week in science. As ever, make sure to give us a follow on Twitter, at Nature Podcast, for all the latest updates. Until next time, I'm Adam Levy. And I'm Benjamin Thompson. Thanks for listening. Deep dive into the world of science with Nature Plus. From the vastness of the distant star systems to the intricacies of infectious diseases due to climate change, we've got you covered. Enjoy access to over 55 cutting-edge journals, breaking scientific news, and over a 1,000 new articles every month. Whether you're a seasoned researcher or just curious, Nature Plus simplifies complex studies. Plus, it's all available right at your fingertips on nature.com. Nature Plus, the key to unlocking the world's most significant scientific advances. Subscribe today at go.nature.com slash plus. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. 
And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.